listeners. Welcome back. It's time for Maya, my yoga audio, and I'm your host, Megan Morgan. And I am so delighted today to have author and poet Christina M.R. Norcross onto the show. Christina lives in Wisconsin and is the editor of the Blue Heron Review. She's the author of nine different poetry collections, and her most recent books are The Sound of a Collective Pulse, released just this year, and Beauty in the Broken Places, released in 2019. Christina's work appears in Visual Verse, Your Daily Poem, Poetry Hall, Verse Virtual, The Ekphrastic Review, and Pyrene's Fountain, among others. Her work also appears in numerous print anthologies. Christina has helped organize art and poetry projects, has led writing workshops, and has hosted many, many readings. She is the co-founder of Random Acts of Poetry and Art Day, and you can find everything about who she is and what she does at www.christinanorcross.com. Christina, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Megan. It's a true pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. I just received your newest book in the mail, so I'm very excited for us to get into um, The Sound of a Collective Pulse and have you do some readings for us later on as we get into things. Sure. Yeah, but for now, I wanted to let people know how we met. So this is an interesting story. We met online probably about 10 years ago through a mutual friend named Derek Hawley on Facebook. So this is actually the first time, listeners, I know you're just listening to this audio, but Christina and I are meeting and seeing each other for the first time, even though we've been messaging, writing, and sharing art and words for many, many years that we were connected through, through the world of Facebook and through another artist named Derek Holly, who lives in Oakville, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto, Canada. And Derek's told me uh, when we became friends, he's like, I have a friend that I think you really need to meet. And he was absolutely right, because Christine and I have clicked in a lot of different ways. And writing is a big part of that. And imagery is a big part of that. She's mm-hmm. used several of my photographs in her Blue Heron Review publication, which has always been a thrill. But Christine, I want this moment to be about you. So I'm hoping you will tell us all a little bit more about you and your life, your work, and who you are in this moment in time. Because I know it's like, you know, we have the bio that I read, but like, who is Christina right now? Okay. Um, well, uh, I'm the mother of two teenage boys, and I don't know quite how that happened, but uh, my <laughs> oldest, <laughs> yeah, they went from being... Um, I moved to Wisconsin from New Hampshire, and when we moved here, they were four and 18 months old, and now they are 18 and 15 going on 16, so that time has just flown by, and I know that you know that as a fellow mom uh, with your two daughters, your two beautiful daughters. So first and foremost, I'm, I'm a mother and a partner to my husband of 26 years, <laughs> and that's also gone by very quickly. And at the forefront of my mind is helping our oldest uh, get into college. So that's mm-hmm. sort of, that is occupying a very big amount of space. And he's doing a great job. It's such a big journey that he's about to embark on. And uh, he's actually applying to schools in Ontario. Um, my husband and I both went to university in Ontario. 
even though I'm an American. And uh, so we're guiding him through that. And uh, it's a whole new process. When I was applying, everything was in paper form. And if you made a mistake, you'd have to type your essay up again and everything's online now. I could probably do a whole podcast on the stress of helping your senior (laughs) apply to college, but I know it's not about that. But uh, that is occupying a great deal of my life right now. I'm so proud of him and he's working so hard towards that. So uh, a wife and a mother and a cheerleader for a soon-to-be high school graduate, a writer and a poet, the editor of Blue Heron Review. I'm also a cheerleader for other poets. That's always, as much as I like to promote my own work, I'm probably more comfortable promoting the work of others. (laughs) Um, Hence Blue Heron Review. I just, I love being able to provide a space to feature and showcase the work of, of my poets. Um, so that's that's a big thing for me. And I thought I was going on hiatus with Blue Heron Review. Surprise, we're back again. You know, I announced <laughs> that we were bringing it to a close. I, I had kind of, I, I had shifted gears because life was getting very busy, you know, with, with my kids. And I went from doing two issues per year and a featured author every month to just doing the featured author. And then just as I was announcing that I was slowing down completely and putting Blue Heron on hiatus, the pandemic hit. And I saw that there was this great need for expression and for a shared space, a place where we could safely talk about what we're going through and to also share a sense of hope. So, you know, I said that we were bringing things to a close and then I opened up submissions again and our first bonus issue, I'm calling them bonus issues at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Just, you know, um, but our, our first bonus issue had the theme of hope and I was inundated, just flooded with submissions. So much so that I had a second bonus issue without a call for submissions because we just, I wanted to publish more work. There was so much beautiful, meaningful work out there that I wanted readers to enjoy and connect with. So a big part of my life during the pandemic has been not just keeping up with my own writing, but helping to foster the needs of those around me. So I'm always amazed. And even the most recent one that I, you have featured one of my photographs in it from Lake Tahoe. And I was so honored But when I saw the list of all the contributors. I mean, you are true to your word, right? Like there's probably a hundred people in every issue or it feels like it, but it, it, it all, <laughs> yeah, it feels so good though, right? To see that yeah. collection and that passion and, you know, all those words and images coming together. It's just, it's such a thrill. And I think you're absolutely right. It was so needed at this moment in time, especially, right? It's funny how, and I say funny, not in the hysterical sense, but just ironic, right? That right when we say, okay, we're going to not do this anymore. And then the pandemic changed everything, oh. everything. <laughs> Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, right when the lockdown started, right, March 2020, how crazy is that? You know, like this coming March will hit that two-year mark. But I very quickly scrambled to create something on Facebook called the um, Connection and Creativity During Challenging Times prompt group. And that has, we've just steadily just been chugging along with that. I didn't know how long I was going to run with it for. At first, it was like a place for you know, fellow writers to come together, or I thought maybe we'd get some younger people on there, but my teenagers tell me that Facebook is for old people. So, um, (laughs) so, okay. Um, (laughs) I was trying to provide a space for, you know, parents and, you know, and their kids, young writers, you know, but it turned into mostly 
you know, older or, you know, not old, old, but um, older people uh, coming together on, on Facebook. To, but it's been a wonderful space. And I started off offering uh, a writing prompt one every day. <laughs> so I did that from March <laughs> until June. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, I am just going to completely exhaust myself and run out of steam if I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I realized not everyone wants to write and share their work every day. And I was having to come up with new prompts. So then I went to the once a week um, template and that has worked well. So since June of 2020, I've been offering a new writing prompt once a week. And then starting January, 2021, I introduced another element, which was a live Zoom open mic reading. So a bunch of us get together on average, like, you know, eight, eight to 12 people once a month, sometimes more, sometimes less. And it's just a great place for people to meet, especially before the, you know, the vaccines came around when people were even more, you know, secluded, mm-hmm. um, isolated in their homes. You know, the writing prompts were great to virtually come together. And then to, for us to be able to see each other and talk to each other, it was like a great hangout session once a month. And so I, I keep doing that once a month and it's it's a little it's a little party a little poetry party um poetry and prose and it's been great i mean it does as much for for my heart and well-being as it does for everyone else there so um it, it's a win-win for sure it is i in the moment forgotten that you did that even though i'm i'm kind of peripherally part of that group there's been a couple of times where i'm like oh i want to sign up and there's always something but we're about we are two hours apart right Yes. Where, where we are, where I am, where you are. And I usually do it seven till eight. Yeah. So it's probably around your dinner time and not quite convenient for you. Yeah. yeah but I, I really want to make it because every time I, I see all your new prompts and there's always something really interesting to do. So that's called connection and creativity. Yeah. Group, it's right? called connection and creativity is just like the shorthand for it. And it is a private group. Anyone can find it, but you won't be able to see any of the posts until you ask to join. And then I'll, I do that so that people feel comfortable sharing their work, yeah. um, you know, and also you can share unpublished work there and you can still submit it to magazines. That way it like, it enables people to share their rough drafts and work on things and then send it out to places because it's a private group and no one else can see it. And it's very informal and free form. You know, people come and go, you don't have to contribute every week if you don't want to, or you can do your work on your own. You don't have to share your work, but it becomes very conversational and people the whole point is for the group to be a safe space to share and also to lift others up. I always encourage people, you know, no pressure to share, but we'd love to hear from you and please leave a nice comment for someone else too, you know? So it's, um, it's a very nurturing, supportive uh, writing community. Oh, I love that. So I hope listeners, you will go and check that out. If it's of interest to you, I can definitely vouch for Christina and the safe space she provides. And I love that you mentioned how unpublished work is still safe to go on for because you're right there are some things where they're like we don't care if you've been published somewhere before like automatically you're disqualified from xyz so it's good to know that's an important part for other writers to know and i was curious if you would tell us a little about so your most recent book is the sound of a collective pulse published with kelsey books and nine other separate collections of poetry that you've had published the, the sound of a collective pulse is included in the nine. So nine. In nine, the nine. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what's behind this one. Well, I guess um, our our session is, is very pandemic themed because the book <laughs> itself, it was written during the pandemic and I didn't 
set out to write a pandemic-inspired collection, but I wanted to have a focus, once again, for distraction and, and to give myself something to work towards. And so sometimes I'll start a collection by having a theme in mind, and then I'll write to that theme. Other times, the collection takes shape uh, or form based on, you know, what have I been writing? So I'll, I'll go back to files for the past year or two years or more and just look at what I've been writing about. And for, you know, for 2020 into 2021, I guess these are all, most of these were written in 2019 and 2020. The theme emerged around the idea of what do we all have in common right now? What are we all struggling with? What are we all going through? And two of my favorite journals, um, just to take it back a bit, are um, the Ekphrastic Review and Visual Verse. Those are both um, ekphrastic-based journals, um, which I cannot highly recommend enough if anyone's looking for, if anyone loves to write about visual art, which is one of my niche genres, go check out Visual Verse. They provide a visual prompt once a month for you to write to. And the Ekphrastic Review provides an ekphrastic challenge once every two weeks, which is, so it's a, both are wonderful journals. But those are, those are my two go-tos if I need something for inspiration. And I was looking at poems published in those two journals or going through my list. And I was noticing that whatever piece of artwork or visual that was put up for me, no matter what the visual was, I was writing about what we were all going through, like the need for connection. You know, a couple of my girlfriends, we would meet once a week and we, we would call it, you know, girls night, virtual girls night. There was this need for connection. You know, we lived a matter of a few miles away from each other, and yet we weren't allowed to see each other. And so we would have these little video chats with each other. But all of my poetry was about the need for connection. How does connection nurture us? And realizing just how important and sacred human connection is. You don't realize how vital it is until you don't have it. You know, and I, I feel so blessed and lucky that. I was in lockdown with my husband and my two sons. And as, you know, as much as we were maybe stepping on each other's toes a little bit, having to share space, I, we came together and just were so thankful for one another. So I feel lucky that I wasn't in lockdown alone. But there were a lot of people in my writing community who, you know, did live alone or who were widowed and coming together for that prompt group, you know, I think was really helpful for everyone. So this book is really kind of, it's about that journey. Not that I was conscious in, in creating this collection. I just, I gathered up all these poems in my arms and I thought, these are poems that can be shared because I want to show, you know, the, the cover, I, not that people can see what I'm doing right now, the cover has a hummingbird on it. And I, I looked and looked for images that I thought would fit well with the theme. And I, I was I was imagining this hummingbird and the pulsing of the wings and the idea of the pulsing of the wings, the shared heartbeat, the, the connection, the, the thread that connects all of us. I, I just I really wanted to bring some comfort to readers through this collection. Oh, I love it. And what you probably don't know are synchronicities. We always synchronize in some way. There's an earlier episode on the podcast, probably, I want to say seven or eight episodes back, where I did a personal development webinar with a group I volunteer for, sometimes called Shakti Rising. Everything that came to me was about wisdom from birds, and one of them was the hummingbird. So there was like this series of exercises that I did about like what we can learn from specific birds, from their feathers, from their flight patterns, from all of that. And 
I'm just like, oh, so I'm so delighted when I saw the cover. I was like, yes. I mean, who doesn't love a hummingbird anyways, right? But it's extra special that that was the cover of your book and how consciously you chose that. I wonder if you feel comfortable reading a few of sure. the of the poems. Yeah. I would love to. I'll start with the title poem, The Sound of a Collective Pulse. The Sound of a Collective Pulse. The news comes on, a stream of lightning bolt events. We feel the jolt of loss and destruction speed through the spine and every connected bone. This is what it means to ache. After five months of carefully navigating an unsure world, nothing feels the same. We cannot touch. We stand far apart. Home feels safer. This is what it means to fear the invisible foe. We connect through voice, word, and video. We learn to make time because all we have is time. We learn to stand still and drink in the vast expanse of unscheduled hours. This is what it means to exist. We sit together and feel the sky burst inside our chests We listen to the sound of a collective pulse. This is what it means to hope. Mm. I had to close my eyes there for a bit, just because it was, you are a visual writer in that sense. Like every word that you say, I can visualize and just really feel in my chest. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I want you to read more, but I also want to ask you other questions. So (laughs) you tell me whether you feel like it's time to read another poem or maybe later or ask more questions. Sure. You can ask more questions and then I can read another poem after that. Another one. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I love that. I almost hope that readers will pause at that point and maybe rewind and listen to it again because it's, yeah, it deserves that extra Um, listen I'm curious how because it's been a few years and you always write so even just in your own personal posts whether it's about a poem or something in your life how your calling in life has impacted you your family your friends your lifestyle there was a post you did years ago like it's at least three to five years ago like I know you've gone into like your son's schools to talk about being a poet and a writer and like, when did you know that you want? Have you always known that you wanted to be a writer? I feel like I've always known I wanted to be a writer, but I'm just curious about your process, your life, and how you walk in the world with that. Okay, that's an interesting question <laughs> um, because it was sort of a circuitous path, or I I rediscovered and re- I rediscovered my passion and love for writing. I was an avid reader when I was when I was quite young and I enjoyed I started writing maybe sixth grade. I had a wonderful English teacher by the name of Mrs. Davison and she was fantastic. And I I really I discovered a love for writing then. And then, you know, one of my all time favorite teachers was in eighth grade, Mrs. Flanagan. You just you don't forget the names of these teachers, Mm -hmm. the ones that really have an impact on you. And she you know, she taught me that I had a voice and that it came naturally to me. Um, and she was just a phenomenal teacher. I, I loved Mrs. Flanagan. 
And she passed away before I could send her a copy of my first published book. I sought her out. And then one of her friends, a fellow teacher, who was my math teacher, was still around. And I sent her a copy. And But um, anyway, um, so I mean, I had some, all along, I just always had these amazing English teachers who inspired me. But I didn't know I wanted to become a writer back then. Although when I looked at my junior high yearbook, when it said, you know, like, future this, future that, it actually said future poet. And I totally forgot that, you know, that that was written about me. But because, uh, you know, junior high and all through high school, I, I studied the performing arts. I was in tons of, I was in musical theater, and I studied ballet and classical voice. And I studied opera with coaches in New York. And like, that was supposed to be my path was performing arts. And not that I didn't love that, but I made my way up to Canada. My now husband, then boyfriend, was at Carleton University. And we, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, we met senior year of high school, different high schools, but, you know, a, a version of high school sweethearts. And we had been going long distance for a while. So I eventually, I transferred up to uh, the University of Ottawa in Canada. And I started taking courses and then was able to transfer in. I started as a special student and transferred in. And the more English courses I took, the more I was like, well, I really like this. And then I thought, I remember loving this. How did I forget that I loved this? You know, and there was this aha moment of, yeah, so this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And and that came later when we moved to England and I had my first short story published. And I was like, this, this is it, you know? So I, I started out loving literature and writing, was so busy singing, dancing, performing, like English was always my strongest subject and I always loved it, but I was busy doing all these other things that I didn't realize, well, no, this is what you love. You know, so I mean, I think, I, I think I heard someone say, if someone, if someone were to ask you, what did you love doing when you were 10 years old? Like if, you know, if you ever, if you ever are losing your path or not quite sure what you want to do, just go back and ask that 10 year old self what you love to do. Chances are that's what you still love to do. Maybe you just forgot, you know, or you needed some reminding. So um, I don't know if I answered your question properly. <laughs> you absolutely did. Yeah. And I love that you brought up our Canadian connection, too, because I knew it was Ottawa. And I couldn't remember if it was Carleton or you, Ottawa. And it's both. So my, mem- my memory wasn't totally flawed. So, yes, Richard and I met. We were both going to Carleton. So we've been married about the same amount of time. When were you at Carleton? I'm wondering if, like, we, like, passed each other, like, in Ottawa. <laughs> like, didn't know it. So wouldn't that be from? Crazy? 91 to 95. Okay. Uh, I moved up there in the summer of 91, and I left in 95. We were there the exact same time. We were there the same time. Oh, my gosh. That is so crazy. Yep. I'm, like, we're only just discovering this now as we say it. That is nice. I just got a little ripple, a little shiver. So our energies were there and we just didn't connect. Like we didn't, oh my gosh. But I'll bet you anything, we crossed at the Rideau Center. We were in the same, (laughs) the same restaurant. I mean, we'd go to, oh my God, we go to jazz clubs. We went to, oh my gosh. Anyway, (laughs) we'll have to have that offline. And really talk about this. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. 
Oh, did you ever, real quick, I know people are going to be listening to this and we're now it's, it's turning into a girlfriend talk, but did you ever go to the Manx pub on Elgin? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. My husband will, will love listening to this because if, yeah, the Manx, the Manx was one of our favorite hangouts. So, oh my gosh. Okay. Uh-huh. It was the Earl, I think the Earl of Sussex we were yes. at more often, but yep. I haven't been to the Manx too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, go to the Earl of oh, oh no oh no the Earl of Sussex that that wasn't directly across oh we went to the Brigadier, the Brigadier's Pump was right across from mm-hmm. the Manx but I we went to the Earl of Sussex as well <laughs> that's that's crazy well hopefully I'm still in touch with some of my uh, wow. Carlton roomies and friends so if you're listening I know you're going to be over there just howling at this and one of them probably knows you I feel like <laughs> the way that six degrees of separation works yeah there's yeah. somebody else we mutually know besides Derek. And I'm so glad you brought up England because I don't think I realized that you lived there. I just thought you traveled there a lot. So tell us about that. How long did you live there for? Um, so we got married in we got married in September 1995. So not long after, like, a, uh, like I don't know, a half a year after I graduated. And, and then we moved to England not long after that. And it was supposed to be just for a year and it turned into five years. <laughs> we, my husband has family both in Canada and England. His dad's side of the family um, is, from, is from England. Um, his, his nan at the time lived in Manchester and uh, she gave us, she very kindly gave us uh, a place to live before we settled uh, in Newcastle in the north of England. And um, we were there for about a year and then had no shower, just a tub. So that's, I can talk about that and all the, (laughs) all sorts of, with really long hair, that can be an issue, um, trying to wash conditioner out of your hair. Um, And then we moved to London and lived, uh, and lived in London for the rest of our, of our time there. But it was when we lived in this tiny bungalow, we were in South Shields and we were right down the road from Marsden Rock and, and the sea. And that was when I got my very first short story acceptance for a, a literary magazine called Linkway in Carmarthenshire, Wales. So that was my very first, I can't believe I pronounced that. That So I, I really wrote more short stories than poetry. I mean, I started off writing poetry when I was really young and I, I was really into writing these little vignettes and like like flash fiction. And then I got more into poetry, especially after my boys were born because I you know, I, I would have just enough time during a nap to get maybe like a quick rough draft of something out. And it, it was like this feeling of satisfaction that I completed something like it wasn't finished or polished yet, but I got something down on paper. But um, our time living in England was was great. I mean, I, I was a new grad, you know, thinking that I could get all sorts of fabulous jobs with my English literature degree, you know, and I ended up, you know, not at all. So I had a series of unfulfilling uh, temp jobs while I was there. One of which was when we lived in Newcastle, I I worked for British Gas. Uh, I also worked for the Newcastle Football Club briefly, but I was with British Gas for the benefits of working part-time shift work for British Gas was I, I would be on for I don't know, five hours at a time and then I had off, I would have off for the rest of the day. So I would, I would do my job and I would come home to my little bungalow and, you know, I think we had a we finally had a TV that the landlord loaned to us that got three channels. 
So there, you know, there wasn't really, there were no distractions here, you know, so I had time to write and, and, and that's, and that's what I did, you know, and then when we moved to London, I kept submitting my work and I, my, my work found homes in, in a couple of other literary magazines. And, uh, and once again, my, I would spend my evenings writing or on the weekends writing when I wasn't working. And, um, London was exciting because we had an apartment with a shower. You know, the, the first thing I did when we brought our bags in was I'm taking a shower and getting you know months of conditioner out of my hair that would never come out in the bathtub. But, um, it, you know, London, it was, it was, it was exciting and one, like both places were wonderful in their own unique ways. But, um, from London, we did a lot of traveling and, you know, for very little money, which was great as a young married couple, we didn't have much money to spare. So we felt very fortunate to be able to travel all over. So that is amazing. Any other spots in Europe or elsewhere that you traveled to that are favorites besides the pockets of England you were in? Well, um, definitely, we went to so many places. I I'll, I will start by saying that the Lake District in the UK is one of my all time favorite places. Mm-hmm. You know, we were fortunate enough to go there a couple of times as a couple. My husband had some consulting work where they had workshops or, or things there that he went on his own. And we were lucky enough that after moving back to the States, once our kids were, um, they were still young, but a, a little older, we, we had the great fortune of taking them with us back to England to visit the Lake District. So to be able to share that with them and stay in a little stone cottage and and go on hikes up, up mountains and not not as not too high for me I'm not so great at the heights but uh, and seeing waterfalls and um, and going to Wordsworth's Rydal Mount and Dove Cottage and to to be just surrounded by that energy of the romantic poets uh, uh, was a big thrill for me and I'm I'm someone who if, if I find a place that I love I just want to return there over and over again I'm a little boring that way but I could never ever tire of the Lake District it's just such a beautiful beautiful breathtaking place to be but I was I was thinking about that idea of other favorite places I Vienna Austria um, is a favorite um, of mine just just when you come upon one beautiful square you know you would take a corner and it would open up upon another beautiful square just just gorgeous and visiting the Gustav Klimt Museum was just a huge highlight and yeah as an artist I'm sure that you know that would appeal to you as well mm-hmm and Belgium. Now, now, most of my other memories, if I go on to tell you about my other favorite places, it always involves food. So, <laughs> so I, can't, I can't really help that. Um, Bruges, yeah, going, we went to Bruges and just having, you know, moule frites, the, having mussels and mussels and, and, and fries or you know, mussels and chips, you know, dipped in horseradish mayonnaise. That's like one of my all time favorite things. So, yeah, I think we had that for, we were there for four or five days and we had mussels, you know, moulet frites like for lunch and dinner every single day we were there. I just couldn't, that and a pint of beer, you know, that's the point. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's another connection we have. My mother is Flemish. She's oh. actually from Belgium. Oh, and um, I grew up, I didn't grow up with my mom, but I grew up with her mom, who's also Flemish. And Absolutely. That's where my love of, of that food comes from. We had that at home, like as a regular thing, and it grosses the heck out of anybody else. Like no one can understand why I love that stuff, but it was just like, that was like normal. Not so much the beer, like I <laughs> I don't like beer, but 
It was common in our house. Like it was on the dinner table all the time. And yeah, fries and fries and mussels. And oh, that's so cute. I love that we have that in common too. <laughs> it's amazing. And actually, because we're talking about family, we've been talking about your family, and I keep interjecting with mine. But I want to go back to <laughs> that we possibly have a way back family connection on the island of Saba. And I'm still learning about this. I think you are too. But um, I guess, can you tell us more about your connection to Seba um, and what you've, what you've learned? Because I think this will be new for a lot of people. Um, so Seba is a very small island in the Caribbean. And I recently learned that it's only 5,000 square feet in area altogether, uh, very small. And it's, it's the island where um, my grandmother on my mother's side uh, was born, my grandma Cora. She was born there. And she left Seba when she was only 11 years old to live in Barbados. She was sent to stay with relatives to have a better chance at an education. But she had to leave her mother and her siblings to do that. One sibling also went with her to Barbados. And then she left Barbados when she was 18 to come to America, which was, I mean, a huge, courageous thing to do. So it just I, acts of bravery throughout her life, my grandma Cora, mm-hmm. for sure. And uh, I did quiz my mother a little bit about some facts. So my my family is from, to say you're from a certain area on the island almost seems a little comical because it's so small. But I mean, they did have areas on the island, you know, like like the bottom, there's actually a part of the island called the bottom that's the town called them. and um, my grandma Cora was from the St. Saint, Saint John's area of the island and my grandma Cora's father was James Hassel he was uh, a clergyman and a ship's chaplain and uh, unfortunately he passed away of illness at sea when she was quite young so she went through quite a lot of hardship but we what I remember most about the island of Seba is just the joyfulness and the welcoming nature of the people there who made you feel like you were family. I mean, we were family, but when when I went there to visit, I think I went there twice, once when I was four and maybe again when I was seven, very little. And I haven't been there since. I would love to go back to Seba again, but it's amazing how vivid my my memories are just from those two times that I visited. And, you know, I think my nose probably came up to the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was sitting around a table with all these other island women. And I was just, you know, watching and listening. There was always laughter. There was always good food. And whatever people had, they shared with you. But I remember being at a table with with just the women, and they were engaging in this beautiful art form called Seba Lace, if you ever look it up. And um, uh, I know no one can see it. I should have brought it with me just to show you. But I, I have this beautiful powder blue um, handkerchief that my grandmother sewed her initials on using sable lace, where it's a method of, and I don't know how to do it myself, but you, you pull threads out of, of the linen, and then you add threads and tie little knots to form this very intricate lace work. It's just gorgeous. And I know it takes so much patience and many, many hours um, to make. But um, so really when I think of the island, I, I think of people smiling and laughing and and just the, the affection and the welcoming nature of everyone there. And I even, I did write a chapbook inspired by my family on the island called The Lava Storyteller. 
Unfortunately, it's out of print. It's a limited edition print run chat book by a publisher called Red Mare Press. And I believe this one came out in 2000, I want to say 2013. I have at least one Saba poem that I can read to you. I would love that. We would love that. I say I. We. <laughs> I, I have two and they're both short. So, Yeah, please, please. So the name of the chapbook is The Lava Storyteller. The idea of the island being an inactive volcano. So I call it The Lava Storyteller. Island of clay, sand, and earth. Liquid lava now silent. You are the land of trees dripping mangoes and goats clinging to cliffs. Bare feet read braille, ancient explosions, black crumbs and dust from when earth was the only inhabitant. Island of Seba, the earth speaks of ancestors, still humming the old stories, still laughing over a bottle of sweet malta. A bottle of sweet, what was the last word? Sweet Malta. It's um, Malta. It's kind of, I don't think it's carbonated. In Ottawa, I found this Caribbean deli that had Malta in their fridge at the back of it. And mm-hmm. I I saw it in the fridge and I pulled it out and I went, oh, it's Malta. You know, it's it's this sweet, um, I believe it's, I don't know if it's made with prune juice, but it, it tastes really good. I have a memory of it tasting really good. So it, it's kind of like, like a sweet treat, kind of like a... Mm. A soda kind of thing, but a, yeah, sweet mom. Oh, that's lovely. That was really lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And our what we think our connection may be is there, there's very few people, because it's so small, there's very few people who can claim Saban heritage. And I'm not, I'm not explicitly claiming it, but there's a, a rumor amongst some of my relatives in Bermuda, which is also very small. I thought it was the smallest island at 22 square miles, but 5,000 5, square feet has got to gotta top that for sure. Oh, 5,000 square miles, sorry, yeah. 5,000 okay. square miles, that's 5,000 square feet. Yeah. Oh, 5, oh okay. No, 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 five, wait, wait. Did I say five? Five, five square miles, right. Oh, so that still is smaller. That is still smaller than yeah. Bermuda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Bermuda's 22, and I thought that was, I mean, like, that's less than a marathon <laughs> at 22 square miles. So five square miles, that's still small. Right. Um, but yeah, Bermuda's so small, and we don't know much about our fathers. My dad is from Bermuda, and so the the oral history is that those family members came from Saba and or Turks and Caicos and or Jamaica, and of course England, because most, <laughs> most Bermuda is still a British colony technically. But yeah, I was just very interested to learn more about Saba. I was delighted to find out that we possibly had that connection together too. Thank you for bringing that up with us. And I wanted to ask you about, I guess, again, in terms of your books, because you used to do a lot of public book signings, but I think the pandemic has maybe changed a lot of that, or maybe things are starting to open it up again. Um, but do you have any readings or other events coming up? And I know we've mentioned the, the places on Facebook, there's the Connection and Creativity group that people can ask to join. And there's also the Blue Heron yes. Review. Blue Heron Review. Anyone listening to this podcast will get a little sneak peek. I am going to do another call for submissions for another bonus issue. So in December, it, it'll be it'll be announced on the website. And also there's a Blue Heron Review Facebook page where, where I'll post announcements for things. 
I won't say what the dates are yet, but sometime in December, we'll have a call for submissions. And the theme is going to be connection. Nice. Fostering connections. But in terms of my new book, The Sound of a Collective Pulse, I do have an official book launch party. It is virtual. Um, It's at my local independent bookstore, one of my favorite indie bookstores called Books and Company in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And I'm very, very thankful to this amazing independent bookstore. The owner is just so supportive of local poets and authors. And um, she has hosted past uh, book launches for me. This is going to be a virtual book launch reading on Zoom. Um, You have to register to attend. It's a free event, but you do have to register in advance. So people can go to the Books and Company website and they can, I think the the list of upcoming events is on the homepage. And if you just scroll down to find my name, you can click on it and then register to attend. And it is Thursday, December 9th at 7 p.m. Central Time. So that's my official book launch. But I mean, I think poetry readings are slowly coming back to being in person, but I know bookstores still feel a little hes- hesitant to to do the face-to-face thing because you don't know how many people might show up and it's, it's a lot of people to have all in one space. Aside from that book launch, I will have a group reading with several other authors in January. Um, it's not set, you know, it's not set on the calendar yet, but and there's another, I was asked to be a featured author for a reading series that, that that'll be happening like uh, late winter, early spring. But um, any future events will be on my uh, my author website, the www.christinanorcross.com. So on, on the events page, as the events come up on the calendar, I'll, I'll be putting all the information on the website there. Oh, wonderful. Follow my author page on Facebook too. If it, I, I usually post things there as well. Yeah, no, this is good. And we'll put, um, I know you sent me a lot of the the links to where people can buy your book to support you and independent bookstores. We'll find that link. I'll find that if you haven't sent it already to where um, your virtual book reading will be too and post that in the show notes so that it's just there for everybody. Thank you so much. No, that's wonderful. It's available through the the publisher's website, Kelsey Books. Um, It's also on Amazon, but I always try to ask people to support, you know, independent publishers and independent bookstores if they can. Um, Books and Company, um, they have the book available to order online through their website. So even if you don't live local to Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, you can order you can order a signed copy through Books and Company. So that's another way to do oh, it. Oh, that's actually something, that's a good thing that they're doing. That's the request I get from people most just in terms of my book. And I'm like, sometimes it's harder with the, the postage, but I haven't figured out how to coordinate it so they can order it from Amazon and get it in two days, but still... <laughs> Right. be signed. <laughs> um, so there's, I know there's a solution out there to do that. So thank you. Thank you for making that, um, all those options available to people. And just thank you for bringing so much of your, your beauty and your gifts into the world. And I think, I feel like you're an artist on all levels, like even, f- and I, I knew that, I think I knew that you used to dance because I've seen you seen posts where you've um you know put up from performances you were in in your younger days and I feel like all of that is just just the road we walk like as an artist in the world like your writing and your speaking and your poetry and and your gifts like you are expressing it bodily in one way you know when you were in school and now it's just coming out another way it's just the 
just the way your gifts are translating to the world. So, and nothing is ever lost. I, I think um, right. being comfortable at poetry readings is just another form of being on stage. You know, so from my years of you know dance, musical theater, or giving classical vocal concerts, I'm I'm channeling that into my poetry readings now. So it's just um, I think mm-hmm. whatever has come before has it's all been part of part of the journey, part of the path, and it, it all becomes infused in the now and, and it become it, it's 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 all it's all helpful. It's all enriching, I think. Yeah. I actually not to belabor a point, but I'm thinking about what you said about like just that simple pleasure of getting into a shower and being able to rinse the conditioner fully out of your like such a small thing like no one would ever think of that. But like it's it's those little things in life that we're grateful for every day. And I feel like you're one of those people who really notices those everyday beautiful things to be grateful for. And it's it's the thing I know when I struggle, when I'm like feeling sorry for myself or I get down about something, I try to remember those things that I'm grateful for that are just so simple that not everybody has on, on whatever level, right? Like, so thank you for the, just the reminders in your everyday life and, and in your written words that are so powerful and beautiful. Thank you. That's very kind yeah. of you. Yeah. And for making the time to be on the show this late at night in your time zone. I so appreciate it. We will wrap things up for today, unless you have any other last words you want to say for us. Um, do I have time for one last poem? Of course. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the last poem of the book. Uh, this is the very last poem in The Sound of a Collective Pulse. It's called Breathing Peace. And I originally wrote this for um, 100,000 Poets for Change. It's a celebration that's done once a year. And I haven't had the opportunity to host a poetry reading for 100,000 Poets for Change in in some years, but when I was the host, this was a poem that I wrote just for that. And it's so every year, it's it's poets coming together to share work, and it doesn't have to always be poets. You can have musicians and visual artists, and it's all about being an advocate for social change and environmental interests, and you know, just raising greater awareness for for these issues. So this is what I wrote for that that one year. It's called Breathing Peace. If peace was something we could hold in our hands, we would mold it like clay. We would shape it into a circle, leaving our thumbprint on it, then carefully pass it into the knowing hands of the next person, as if handling a newborn sparrow. If peace was something we could breathe, we would close our eyes and savor the precious air flowing into our lungs, passing through our lips. That exhale would be a prayer. It would be a song in three-part harmony. If peace was something we could taste, it would be figs drizzled with honey. We would arrange it on a plate with a silk-petaled sunflower decorating the center. We would pass the plate around with reverence, ensuring that every single person received nourishment. If peace was something we could walk to, it would be a sacred labyrinth of circles. We would greet each other on the meditative path. We would come together at the center and admire our cohesive union, arms raised to the sun, rejoicing in what we could not see or touch, 
but we could feel it. We have been walking together for such a long time. We have always been at peace, but we become lost in the forgetting. Thank you. Makes me a bit emotional. (laughs) Something else that we all need to reflect on what that means, what peace means, you know, in our day-to-day lives with each other when we're out in public. We belong to each other. I think we forget this as people that we are all connected. We are all part of the same family, no matter who we are, where we come from. And to walk beside one another in love is important. Absolutely. It's a good place to to pause here, listeners, and maybe go back and listen to that one again, or better yet, get a copy of Christina's book so you can read it again and again and again for yourself. Just meditating, praying, whatever words feel right to you on on what peace means, what collective pulse means to you and until next time my friends please continue to listen closely and expand yourselves exponentially because it's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat Mm -hmm.